seated. Great God, right? The great I am. Big God. Today we start the book of Ephesians. Bring it on. Big God, right? And uh, we are going to see that in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I've already had some mention it's one of their favorite, if not their favorite book in the Bible. So the pressure is on, but here's the wonderful delight. God uses his word, right? And this is all about him. Great is his name. Well, today is about background. Background is really important because if we're going to go and if we're going to seek to understand the letter of Ephesians, we need to be able to get to a place where we understand it historically so that we're able to interpret it properly and just get more out of it. Well, let me give you an example. I got a random picture here I pulled off of just from our family history stuff here, and I just pulled a random picture off, okay? Here we go. Now, I have a question for you, just as an example here. What right now, where are you thinking this is taking place at? Some people just shoot some things out. A rodeo, okay, what, what else? Okay, in a softball, baseball field, what was that? A ballpark? Okay, what else might be going on? State fair possibility. Any other thoughts? Okay, could be vacation. All right. Now, who's the one over here on your far left? Your far left. You don't know who that is. Well, piece of information. That is our niece. They live out in Omaha area, and that is our niece who is with us. Who's the one in the middle? Emily, our daughter, and the one over here to the right? Cowgirl Karen. <laughs> There's a whole story behind this that you don't know about that I'm telling you. My wife is so wonderful. But one of the things in our family we talk about is, is Karen does not have what we call a hat head. In other words, any kind of hat Karen wears, so isn't it true, honey, just over the history, we're like, oh, I love you so much, but it's just not quite you, babe. It just doesn't quite work. And then we found this one. Is that not cool? That's my rodeo girl. That is so cool. Well, that's some history behind this picture here that helps you get a little bit better understanding of what's what. In fact, yesterday we went up to North Salem for the, the old-fashioned day, and she forgot to wear it. I got up there. I was so disappointed. But uh, anyway, that's a little bit of history. And I want to tell you, history is very important in understanding context. So today we're going to be talking a whole lot about history in the book of Ephesians. Now, if we want to learn about history, about the book of Ephesians, where do you think we would go to? The book of Acts. We're going to be going there here in a little bit. We're going to go there in a little bit. Well, let me just kind of bring us up to date on a couple things here. Let me bring some, uh, we're going to keep this timeline going this morning because I want to join together all the way from where we finished uh, in our last five months, we were going through the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, we talked about how Christ ultimately went to the cross for us. Woohoo, right? 
I mean, the Son of Man, 15 times in the Gospel of Mark, the term Son of Man is used. Not biological, not God the Father is bigger than, better than, not mature, immature, older, less old. It is nothing like that as we talk about with the term Son. It is talking about the essence and nature of, the equivalent of. Jesus Christ is the equivalent of God the second person of the Trinity. And he came to earth as the son of man, the equivalent one essence and nature of man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That was us on the cross when he was on the cross. Praise God for the son of man reality in the person of Christ. And he died on the cross, but he didn't just die on the cross. He rose from the dead. So in that passage, listen, it guarantees the reality that forgiveness has been provided, that resurrection and the future hope of life has sealed because of his work. And then we see in Acts chapter 2, we didn't get there, but just we jump up ahead. Acts chapter 2, we see when Christ previously had said, I will be sending my comforter, I will be sending one after me. And Christ sends the Spirit of God after he has sent. And the church is initiated, getting started, just kind of getting at it. And so we join at that point in time. Something new is happening. We're going to see more of that in the book of Ephesians as we talk. Then about a year later... About a year later, there was all of a sudden two fired-up guys, Stephen and Saul. Now, fired-up guys, fired-up individuals. Uh, don't fired-up people just, well, either fire you up or, like, annoy you. Isn't that true? Uh, let me give you some examples of, I think, oftentimes people that would fire us up in a positive way, depending, depending on where you're at. Peyton Manning is someone that can fire you up. He has that ability. By the way, oftentimes we think of fired up people. It's kind of, I, I just kind of by nature, I'm kind of a fired up guy. And, and so with things like that, usually oftentimes in football we think of the yelling in the face. Have you ever watched Peyton Manning on the sidelines sometimes where he like looks over at one of his receivers or one of his linemen and gives the parental father eyeball? <laughs> nothing is said. Nothing is thrown. Just... Truth is stated. <laughs> He's one fired up guy. I think of Brett Favre in football as well. Who's the guy in Chicago Bears, the linebacker? No, before him. Hall of Fame. Singletary. That guy had intense eyeballs. When you watch, that guy was fired up. When they would show pictures of him in football, I mean, that was a fired up guy. Some other guys, Christians that fire up. John Piper, James McDonald, Tony Evans are guys for me personally. Just I'm like, ugh. I talk and I just got to sit afterwards, try and take it in. Now there's the other side of the fired up, and I really appreciate it. And just a couple of people come to mind. I don't want to get into politics and go on the sides here. But James Carville is one of those guys who just like literally annoys the tar out of me. <laughs> when you watch him, a bald guy, political analyst kind of thing. And it's just like, oh! Another guy. Everyone can relate. The OxyClean guy. <laughs> like, who does his hair? You know, the black marker? I mean, it's just got the deepest, darkest hair and thing, and it's just always yelling about how exciting cleaning stuff is, isn't it? Uh, and it's just like, turn the channel. And yet, apparently, he's selling a lot of it. Not to our family, I'm telling you. <laughs> okay. 
the fired up people, but here's what I want for us to do seriously. Let's jump to Acts chapter 6. And let's first take a look at a man who is fired up. All of this is kind of in a timeline, okay? You may be saying, why are we going to be talking about Stephen just for a couple of moments? But because the reason is, is we're going to Ephesians, okay? We're going to Ephesians, and we're going to work our way there here over in these next 30 minutes here. And if you don't have a Bible with you, forgot to bring, we've got some people around with one. Want to, for you to have it, because we are going to be reading a lot of text today. All right, and you're going to want to have one with you. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen here was obviously someone just very uh, used by God on fire for God. We jump up to verses 12 uh, in chapter 6. And they. Uh, and they stirred up the people, the kind of the, the people from the synagogue there, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized Stephen and brought him before the council. And they set up the witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard uh, him say that, his Jesus, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of the Moses delivered to us. Not quite true. Uh, verse 15, and gazing at him, Stephen, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel, fired up for God. Look at chapter 7, verse 1, and the high priest said, are those things so to Stephen? Well, the rest of chapter 7 gives what Stephen, Stephen's reply to that and telling all that God had done and what things were about that are going on. We jump up to chapter 7, verse 54, towards the end of that chapter. Verse 54, Now when they, the high priest and the Jewish council, heard these things after Stephen's uh, discussion of answering the question, they were enraged, they were furious, and they ground their teeth at him. I love that. It's like, oh, they're all mad. And they're all sitting around and they're all going, get, you know, like, we're going to get him. Watch this. Uh, yeah, I, just, I just get this. I, I don't, anyway, I thought it was you know, kind of interesting. And they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, Stephen, and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. But they, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named what? Understand the laying the garments at his feet does not talk about the aspect he was just some young teenage bystander there with his mommy and daddy and happened to be in the area and they thought, here, just leave our stuff with him, he'll hold it. Uh, what am I talking about here? Just take a look in just a second. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, in the process of him being stoned, can you imagine being hit with rocks in the body and the head? What are you going to be saying? What am I going to be saying? I can think of a few things. Well, let's listen to what Stephen said. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. <laughs> he wanted them to hear, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
Sounds familiar. And when he had said this, I loved it. He fell asleep. That's good theology about death. That's really good theology about the issue of death. For the person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, death is falling asleep. I just would really appreciate the quick fall asleep process, right? (laughs) But the falling asleep reality. Listen, to be gone from here is not a bad thing. It's to be with God. It's to be with the Son of Man. It's a wonderful thing. And Stephen, I love that, falls asleep. Look at verse 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. This is a young man who was standing there in the process as this saint was being stoned, and he is going, good. I approve it. I'm good with this. Keep throwing the stones till he dies. And by the way, He must have heard, I'm guessing, Lord, forgive them for what they are doing. But keep throwing the stones from this man, Saul. Let us understand that Saul was one who was fired up for the wrong thing. Saul was fired up for the wrong thing. Listen, you see Stephen who is fired up for God, and you see Saul who is ultimately fired up for, quote, God. We're going to see in a little bit, all of this was his religious endeavor. And yet here in this, here is this guy named Saul who is completely fired up to the point that he's willing to have people executed over what he's fired up about. But here's the problem. He's fired up about the wrong thing. I appreciate fired up people most of the time. But being fired up doesn't mean you're right. And so we pray for those who don't know, don't hear, don't follow the gospel. We pray for Mormons. We pray for Jehovah's Witnesses. We pray for Muslims. They're God's created people, yet fired up for the wrong gospel as was Saul in the process here. So we learn about this guy who eventually writes this letter, the human author writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and surrounding. Well, let's go to chapter 9, and we jump up. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, a a term that was used at that time referring to Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Would you not say that's a fired up guy? By the way, the terminology in that is telling us that the high priest did not go to Paul or Saul and say, hey, Saul, will you do this for me? The process of the communication is saying, Saul went to the high priest and asked if he could go to Damascus and find people there who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and bind them up and bring them back. I'm going to like, dude, you are so hot wired on this thing, aren't you? 
I mean, you're not just carrying out assignments. You're asking for them. You're suggesting them. Well, let's keep reading. Because now we're going to find out what happens to this incredible man in this incredible story. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his, away, on his way, he approached Damascus. Now, why was he going to Damascus? To get Christians and take them back. He was not on the road. I'm going to, this is the road to Damascus. Okay? It isn't, just in case you're wondering. But just illustration. So here he is walking on the road. He is not going, the Bible says, seek me and you will find me. And God, I am on the spiritual journey. And I am on this journey on my way trying to find you. And I don't know why I'm going to Damascus, but I just feel you moving me there. And I'm going to try and find you. God, where are you? That's not at all the case, is it? Okay, let's go back. Rewind. And let's start the road to Damascus. I'm on the road to Damascus. I'm going to find some Christians, and I'm going to take them back, and I'm going to get rid of them because I hate their guts because they are telling a lie. And I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealot of zealots, Philippians chapter 3. And these folks have the wrong truth, and I am going to go set it straight and take them out because they are ruining the reality of what God has done in Paul's view. And on the way, what happens? Well, let's take a look. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you get that? You are not persecuting a philosophy. You are not persecuting an idea. This is not a political thing. This is a personal thing. Why are you persecuting me? And verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, teacher? And he said, I am Jesus. Oh, my. I'm wondering what he's thinking right there. I mean, do you know how fast you can think instead of talking? I mean, you can think really, really fast. And at that moment in time, he's on that road, and he's going to find people to be able to take them back, hopefully kill them, he'd be all for that, but at least to get them out of the way. And he's going to them because they believe in Jesus, and Jesus shows up, and it's like, why are you persecuting me? Oops. I'm, I'm serious. I'm wondering what he's thinking right there. Right at that moment. Let's keep reading. At whom you are persecuting, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drink. Now, I'm a guy, and I love to eat. Why would someone not eat for three days? Maybe they don't have food made available to them. Well, that's not the case here. I think of people who have gone through the situations of having a loved one, maybe a spouse, die. I think of the situations where, in marriages where the divorce takes place. Or situations where there is just great havoc and trauma. And in those situations, people just, the whole eating thing, it's like not very desirous. In fact, it's like, eat meat. I don't really care. I, it's, it's irrelevant to me. 
And so I sit here and I read this and I go, he doesn't eat for three days. What is he thinking for three days? In the process of three days, he's there. Listen, Saul is an incredibly intelligent man. He went through some of the best training with one of the best rabbis in the area. He was the up-and-coming, uh, kind of like four years ago, Obama on the speech in the Democratic National Committee. Like, that's going to be the guy up-and-coming. He was kind of that kind of situation taking place with what was in the area. And all of a sudden, he comes into this, and the one he is all in a huff and a tough and using his life against shows up and shows everything that he's believed has been wrong. And there he is in Damascus. He can't see. He doesn't want to eat. And listen, I'm just telling you, this guy has got to be thinking, everything I've been about is wrong. Everything I've been doing is for waste. In fact, I've killed people for this. What is all this about? What, what's going to happen with my job? What's, what are the high priests going to say? Oh, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to do. Just three days of running this through his head. I want to tell you something. This was a radical radical impact in his life. And I am fired up about that because that is what happened. Because in the process, Saul was redeemed by one who is true. He was redeemed by who is true. Now, that, in some ways it doesn't make sense. It was redeemed by what is true. But the fact of the matter is, it's not about a set of facts. It's about a person who has done something, Jesus Christ. And he was redeemed by who is true. By the way, again, remember, God came after him. I'm just so drawn to this, to realize as we go into the book of Ephesians, you are going to see, I think, this reality of what happened in the transformation of Paul's life, Saul at the time, such a radical, God came in and grabbed him. You're going to see that, and we're going to see that in the book of Ephesians. Paul is so enamored by what God has done and what little he has done and deserves. Big God. Big, big, big God. Redeemed by one who is true. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. I wonder how they named it that. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Hey, listen, praying for the first time really to the Father. Listen, Saul prayed a whole bunch before in the Jewish system, but this for one of the very first times through the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Ah, cool. And there he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority over the chief priest to bind all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument. When we come across passages in the scripture that talk about the choosing, electing work of God, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be preaching on the choosing, electing work of God. When we come to passages that talk about how we choose to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, I'm preaching on the need to choose to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's the whole debate about free will predestination 
And the answer is both. Because the scriptures talk about both. So I just wanted to know if, if, if that's a theological topic that you're really all in. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but I am going to leave it this way. From God's perspective, it was completely by his doing. From my perspective, when I was seven years old, I chose Christ. But Doug, you can't rectify the two together. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Big God, right? We go to the scriptures and Paul says in Ephesians later on, you are the elect. And in Romans he says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, he will raise... How do you rectify the two? Uh, because God's God, and I'm good with that. Okay, let's keep on going. You are a chosen instrument. You remember junior high, high school, how you, had, had, how you had to choose an instrument? If you played... Who played instruments in junior high, high school? Oh, come on, more of you had to. Okay, why did you choose the one that you chose? Isn't it interesting when you think back? Well, I'm kind of a tuba person. I'm kind of a flute person. I'm kind of a drum person. You know, for me, my oldest brother played the trumpet. My middle brother tried, played the trombone. I didn't really like the trombone, plus we had an extra trumpet. And the trumpet was small, about the size of a football. For me, that's how I was thinking in those days. And I didn't, it wouldn't get in my way very much where I saw my brother carrying the trombone, and it was a big case. So I'll go with the trumpet because it's a small instrument, and we have an extra one, and we're on the house. And so I chose that instrument. God chose Saul. And it's so obvious in this. He wasn't looking for him. God just grabbed him. Isn't that cool? Isn't that just sweet? What a great big God. Um, he chose an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. By the way, put that in your, uh, in your prosperity, health, and wealth, well-being gospel. I mean, he's just like right up front. In those three days, I've got to let Saul know just how much he's going to suffer for me. <laughs> God is just straight up. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, what? Brother. What a marvelous statement. Just a little bit ago, he was like, him? No way. He killed people. He's going to hurt me. All this kind of stuff. And God said, no, 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 no. He is one. And it's like, okay. I don't feel it, but I'm going to believe it. And he comes in and he says, Brother, oh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, so, <laughs> you know what? And I was wondering if that was going to happen. We're out of the Gospel of Mark, but 10 years from now, every time we go to the Bible and read the word immediately, that's going to be happening. That's a good thing. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was his disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. What a change. That's what happens when someone meets one who is true. Oh, so cool. Well, let's jump up to Acts chapter 13, because I'm getting too into this and uh, going too slow. Acts chapter 13, let's pick up. Because God did not only take one who is all about the wrong stuff, but he came and redeemed one who is true, by one who is true, and he uh, ended up in the process ch choosing him for that which is eternal. We're just real quick, we're going to go through some of these to see what God does. Acts chapter 9, 
or, or Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, some other guys, and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And they went on the first missionary journey, Paul, and Bar- Paul Saul, and Barnabas together. Then after that, they go on the second missionary journey. A few years later, as shortly thereafter, we pick up in chapter, Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Verse 18. After this, Paul, towards the end of the second missionary journey, here, let me put a map up of the second missionary journey, starting out over here in Jerusalem, going up the north side through uh, Galatia, Phrygia, and all these other Ias up there, coming on around to Athens, and then you see right in the middle, Ephesus. And in the second missionary journey, this is what takes place. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with them, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them, Priscilla and Aquila, there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, which was his normal process. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. This was a short stopover. But who did he leave there? Priscilla and Aquila. Jump up to chapter 19, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 23. Uh, Actually then, let me hit 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region in the upper area. This is the start of the third missionary journey. Okay, so we have Christ of the crucifixion. We've got the beginning of Acts. We've got, uh, we see Saul show up on the, on the uh, uh, time plan of God. Uh, Saul is converted. Then some years later, he had the first missionary journey, then the second missionary journey, and then the third missionary journey. This is the third missionary journey, a little bit different trek. You see Antioch, where he started, comes over to Ephesus, and there's a couple important things here out of this that we need to hit. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos uh, was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Jump down to verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This was an area, this was a, a, a building that was used that was teaching. Paul either taught in the morning or could have taught in the afternoon, kind of different views on that. But he taught in this building, that's the point. For how long? Two years. This is huge fact to carry in into understanding the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul spent two years teaching these people every day with them training them, preparing them. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What an incredible start. Jump to verse 17. And this became known all 
became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Yes. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily there. Background into the place of Ephesus. Verse 23. About the same time, there arose uh, a little disturbance uh, about the way. I'm not going to read all the way through it, but basically it's that all of a sudden what ends up happening... uh, Let me do jump down. Verse 27. uh, Because they're talking about the people there who are making idols for for Artemis, the the goddess of the area there. They're concerned about uh, losing their uh, trade. Uh, They're concerned that the great uh, uh, Artemis is going to be rejected, that people are going to talk badly. Uh, Very last last part of verse 27. She, the goddess Artemis, she who all Asia and the world worship. Do you get this idea that this is a place where the world gathers together? It's a major port of entry, a major city that's there, all that are going, and there's all kinds of spiritual stuff that's taking place around. Can I say this? Does it sound a little bit familiar? I just want to tell you, it's really interesting. Not much changes over time. And when we go into the book of Ephesians, I want to say this. There has been great growth and work in this area and in this church. And praise God for that. And yet we live in a world where spiritual wrong and truth and discussion is all over the place. What does God have to say for people like us? The letter of Ephesians. Let me jump down to chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. That's a little bit of the story that took place. A little bit of the timeline of what's happened. Christ in the cross. Church gets going. Stephen is stoned. Uh, Saul is there. Saul is converted. God has an eternal plan to use for him. First missionary journey. Goes on a second missionary journey with Silas. On the third missionary journey, Ephesus is really established and planted with what's going on. Let's go to Ephesians. And just read three verses. Okay? Let's go to Ephesians and read the three verses. Paul. Right there is already a significant truth. His name used to be Saul. Now his name is Paul radically changed all the way to his name. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. You're kidding me. He was a Jew of Jews, a zealot of zealots, a Pharisee of Pharisees, from the tribe of Benjamin. Trained by one of the great rabbis of the area for years, for decades. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. <laughs> what a story. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Listen, Paul can't sit there and go, I was an apostle of Christ Jesus because, man, I was like religious. I went to seminary, and I went all this stuff, and I got to a point where I got so good that God just finally said, uh, I'm going to give you apostleness. I mean, this is the kind of thing where Paul just looks at the very words you see his sister, and he says, Paul, and he describes who he is. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, because it sure was not his will. To the saints, we're going to finish with that in just a second. To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. By the way, Paul is writing this years later after he arrived in Rome under house arrest. He writes to the Ephesians and he's writing to remind them and to summon them to something. And yet here as he talks, he says those who are in Ephesus, there's a whole story there. Two years of life invested in these dear people. He loves these people. And these are people who have been faithful. They have been faithful. The word of God is spreading all over the region. We see in Revelation later on that the church of Ephesus is called to return back to its first love. Even more adding to the reality, these were people on fire for Jesus Christ and were faithful. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints. Let me finish with this, and the worship team's welcome to come on up and get ready as we close. The term saint, the process of sainthood, the process of, quote, saint-making, more properly called the process of canonization, is normally long and complex, taking money, testimonies, and miracles. The candidate for sainthood must first be proposed to the local bishop. Typically, a would-be candidate's cause is presented to the local bishop by his or her admirers who persuade him that the life of the candidate was a model of holiness. Once the bishop accepts and formally opens the cause for canonization, a thorough investigation into the person's life and work has begun. This entails an exhaustive study of the candidate's written works and, when possible, interviews with those who knew or worked with him or her. There is careful scrutiny of his life, virtues, and weaknesses. The investigation aims at getting at the truth of the person's life and virtue, forming a position paper validating, quote, heroic virtue. Only such a one who has lived the Christian life in an extraordinary manner can then, be, can then be given the title venerable by the Pope. The diocesan process is positive. All the information is forwarded to Rome where the Congregation for the Causes of Saints takes a new investigation under the supervision of professional historians and theologians. The arguments and proofs for the person's holiness of life are refined and focused. The title of beautified or blessed is sought after it can be proven that a miracle occurred after the death of the candidate, the result of someone praying to the person for help. And then a second miracle is established, with martyrs being the exception, in that the Pope can reduce their miracle requirement or waive it altogether. 
Once complete, the evidence is presented to the bishops and cardinals who make up the congregation and their judgment is forwarded to the Pope. Only the Holy Father makes the decision to beautify or canonize the candidate for sainthood. The Holy Father looks to a sign from God as confirmation of God's positive judgment concerning beautification or canonization. Miracles are a positive sign that God indeed confirms the decision of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints. They never went through this process. Praise God. Paul has something to say about that in Ephesians. Well, let me close with this, saints. Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. What I just read is not reality. This is reality. But God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. To the saints on the west side of Indianapolis brought to life taught to live first three chapters of Ephesians as we really start in next week you are going to see Paul's life reality communicated laid out and it's marvelous it is marvelous first three chapters brought to life friends brought to life and then we're going to be taught to live let me pray God thank you so much that we are called your children, not because of anything we've done, but because of your marvelous, amazing, and fantastic mercy and grace and work. To you be all glory. To you be our lives. I thank you for the story of Paul, but the story of Paul isn't about Paul. The story of Paul is about the great God of creation. Lord, as we dig into this book, may we just in these coming next weeks savor the truths of what you have done for the one who knows you, who has been brought to life by you. To God be the glory. Thank you for redeeming through the one who is true. In your name we pray. Amen.